Microsoft Story Classic, bringing to you recordings of old storybooks. Sir Gibby, Gibby's calling. I'm not sure that his father's neglect was not on the whole better for Gibby than would have been the kindness of such a father persistently embodying itself, but the picture of Sir George, by the help of whiskey and the mild-hatching oven of Mistress Crowell's parlor, softly breaking from the shell of the cobbler and floating in milk, a mild gentleman in the air of his lukewarm imagination, and poor wee Gibby trotting outside in the frosty dark of the autumn night through which the moon keeps staring down under the window of the parlor where the light of revel shone radiant through a red curtain, he would stand listening for a moment, then darting off a few yards, suddenly and swiftly, like a scared bird, fall at once into his own steady trot, up the lane and down, reach the window again, where again he would stand and listen. Whether he made this departure and returned twenty or a hundred times in a night, he nor anyone else could have told. Sometimes he would, for a change, extend his trot along the witty hill, sometimes along the parallel venom, but never far from Jink Lane and its glowing window. Never moth-haunted lamp so persistently, ever as he ran up this pavement and down that, on the soft-sounding soles of his bare feet, the smile on the boy's face grew more and more sleepy, but still he smiled and still he trotted, still paused at the window and still started afresh. He was not so much to be pitied, as my reader may think. Never in his life had he yet pitied himself. The thought of hardship or wrong had not occurred to him. It would have been difficult, impossible, I believe, to get the idea into his head that existence bore to him any other shape than it ought. Things were with him as they had always been, and whence was he to take a fresh start and question what had been from the beginning? Had any authority interfered with a decree that Gibby should no more scare the midnight streets, no more pass and repass that far-shining splendor of red? Then indeed would bitter, though inarticulate, complaint have burst from his bosom. But there was no evil to issue such a command, and Gibby's peace was not invaded. It was now late, and those streets were empty, neither carriage nor cart, wheelbarrow nor truck, went any more bumping and clattering over their stones. They were well lighted with gas, but most of the bordering houses were dark. Now and then a single footfarer passed with loud, hollow-sounding boots along the pavement, or two girls would come laughing along, their merriment echoing rude in the wide stillness. A cold wind, a small, forsaken, solitary wind, moist with a thin fog, seemed as well as we Gibby to be roaming the night, for it met him at various corners and from all directions. But it had nothing to do, and nowhere to go, and there it was, it not like Gibby, the business of whose life was even now upon him, the mightiest hope of whose conscious being was now awake. All he expected, or ever desired to discover, by listening at the window, was simply whether there were yet signs of the company's breaking up, and his conclusions on that point were never mistaken. How he arrived at them, it would be hard to say. Seldom had he there 
heard the voice of his father, still seldomer anything beyond its tone. This night, however, as the time drew near, when they must go, lest the Sabbath should be broken in Mistress Crowell's decent house, and Gibbie stood once more on tiptoe, with his head just on the level of the window sill, he heard his father utter, utter two words, Up, Darsad! came to him through the window, in the voice he loved, plain and distinct. The words conveyed to him nothing at all. The mere hearing of them made them memorable. For the time, however, he forgot them, for by indications best known to himself, he perceived that the company was on the point of separating, and from that moment did not take his eyes off the door until he heard the first sounds of its opening. As, however, it was always hard for Gibbie to stand still, and especially hard on a midnight so cold that his feet threatened to grow indistinguishable from the slabs of the pavement, he was driven in order not to lose sight of it to practice the art, already cultivated by him to a crab-like perfection, of running first backwards, then forwards, with scarcely superior speed. But it was not long ere the much-expected sound of Mistress Crowell's voice heralded the air for patience to blossom into possession. The voice was neither loud nor harsh, but clear and firm. The noise that followed was both loud and strident. Voices had a part in it, but the movement of chairs and feet and the sudden contact of different portions of the body with walls and tables had a larger. The guests were obeying the voice of, all, of their hostess all in one like a flock of sheep, but it was poor shepherd work to turn them out of the fold at midnight. Gibby bounded up and stood still as a statue at the very door cheek, till he heard Mrs. Crowell's hand upon the lock, when he bolted, trembling with eagerness, into the entry of a court a few houses nearer to the Witty Hill. One after one the pitiable company issued from its paradise, and each stumbled away, too far gone for leave-taking. Most of them passed Gibby where he stood, but he took no heed. His father was always the last, and the least capable. But often as he left her door, never did it close behind him till with her own eyes Mr. Scroll had seen Gibby dart like an imp out of the court to take him in charge, and all the weary way home hover around the unstable e equilibrium of his father's tall and swaying form, and thereupon commenced a series of marvelous gymnastics on the part of wee Gibby. Imagine a small boy with a gigantic top, which six times his own size he keeps erect on its peg, not by whipping it around, but by running round it himself, unfailingly applying at the very spot and at the very moment the precise measure of impact necessary to counterbalance its perpetual tendency to fall in one direction or another, so that the two have all the air of a single invention, such an invention as one might meet with in an ancient clock contrived with men had time to mingle play with earnest. And you will have in your mind's eye a real likeness of Sir George attended any midnight in the week by his son Gilbert. Home the big one staggered, reeled, gyrated, and tumbled, round and round him went the little one, now behind, now before, now on this side, now on that, his feet never more than touching the ground, but dancing about like those of a prize spider, his little arms up, and his hands well forward, like flying buttresses, and such indeed they were, buttresses which flew and flew all about a universally leaning tower. They propped it here, they propped it there, with wonderful judgment and skill, and graduation of force they applied themselves, and with perfect success, 
not once for the last year and a half, during which time we Gibby had been the nightly guide of Sir George's homeward steps, had the self-disabled fallen prostrate in the gutter, there to snore out the night. The first special difficulty, that of turning the corner of Jink Lane and the Whitty Hill, successfully overcome. The twain went reeling and revolving along the street, much like a whirlwind that had half forgotten the laws of gyration, until at length it spun into the court and up to the foot of the outside stair over the baronet's workshop. Then commenced the real struggle of the evening for Gibbie, and for his father too, though the latter was aware of it only in the momentary and evanescent flashes of such enlightenment as made him just capable of yielding to the pushes and pulls of the former. All up the outside and the two inside stairs, his waking and sleeping, were as the alternate tic-tac of a pendulum. But Gibby stuck to his business like a man, and his resolution and perseverance were at length, as always, crowned with victory. The house in which lords and ladies had often reposed was now filled with very poor folk, and who were all asleep when Gibbie and his father entered, but the noise they made in ascending caused no great disturbance of their rest, for if any of them were roused for a moment it was but to recognize at once the cause of the tumult, and with the remark, it's only we Gibby lugging home Sir George, to turn on the other side and fall asleep again. Arrived at last at the garret door, which stood wide open, Gibbie had small need of light in the nearly pitch darkness of the place, for there was positively nothing to stumble over or against between the door and the ancient four-post bed, which was all of his father's house that remained to Sir George. With heavy, shuffling feet, the drunkard lumbered laboriously bedward, and the bare posters and crazy frame groaned and creaked as he fell upon the oak chaff that lay waiting him in place of the vanished luxury of feathers. Wee Gibbie flew at his legs, nor rested until the one after the other he had got them on the bed. If then they were not very comfortably deposited, he knew that, in his first turn, their owner would get them all right, and now arose the coolman of Gibbie's day. Its cycle rounded through regions of banishment, returned to its notice of bliss, and triumph he spread over his sleeping father his dead mother's old plaid of Gordon Tartan, all the bedding they had, and without a moment's further delay, no shoes even to put off, crept under it, and nestled close upon the bosom of his unconscious parent. A victory more, another day ended with success, his father safe and all his own. The canopy of the darkness and the plaid over them, as if they were the only two in the universe. His father unable to leave him, his for whole dark hours to come. It was Gibby's paradise now. His heaven was his father's bosom, to which he clung as no infant yet ever clung to his mother's. He never thought to pity himself that the embrace was all on his side, that no answering pressure came back from the prostrate form. He never said to himself, My father is a drunkard, but I must make the best of it. He is all I have. He clung to his one possession, only clung. This was his father. What must be the bliss of such a heart, or of any heart, when it comes to know that there is a father of fathers, yea, a father of fatherhood, a father who never slumbers nor sleeps, but holds all the sleeping in his ever-waking bosom, a bosom whose wakefulness is the sole fountain of their slumber. 
The conscious bliss of the child was of short duration, for in a few minutes he was fast asleep. But for the gain of those few minutes only, the day had been well spent. Thank you for listening to another episode of Agar Soft Story Classic. Mm-hmm.